Here's your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. This is Carrie Stamp, and you're listening to the Business in Paradise podcast. I have an absolutely fantastic guest that I'm super excited to share with you today. I have Chris Merrill, who's an entrepreneur right here in Palm Beach County. Chris is the CEO and founder of Communications Consulting Group and a couple of other technology businesses that he's going to tell us all about today. Chris, welcome to the Business in Paradise podcast. Gary, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. This is awesome. So your first company was, uh, or that you started is Communications Consulting Group. Tell us a little bit about what CCG does. Well, CCG has been around for about 16 years now. I had started my career right out of college. You know, what are you going to do with a political science degree but get into technology? I got into the cable business and learned my way from the ground up in the telecommunications business. And uh, um, I ended up coming to South Florida on a job with Adelphia Cable, which is now the Comcast legacy properties. And uh, one of the things I noticed is that was very unusual in South Florida were all the gated communities. And all these gated communities and condo associations are pretty normal in South Florida uh, since development happened after the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. But in the rest of the country, weren't as much so. And there were about 8,000 private gated or condo communities in South Florida alone. And those communities, the cable companies needed um, rights to get into those communities. And those rights were called right of easement agreements. And so I saw a hole in the market where the cable companies would come in and say, we need, we have the right to be there. And we would, or we were trained to tell them that. And I became the manager of the Southeast at five states in Puerto Rico. I was trained to tell my representatives that they were to tell the owners and, and board of directors of these condos and apartments and so on, that we had the rights to be in there due to a franchise agreement, when in fact we didn't. And so I realized no one was really correctly representing them. And I saw a hole in the marketplace and I decided to become an advocate for condos and HOAs. This is, you're working for Adelphia. You uh, see this huge opportunity to actually, <clears throat> actually provide a valuable service to these HOAs. And you came down to uh, South Florida because you were working with Adelphia. Is that how you got down here? That's correct. And, and what had happened in the meantime is I, I got recruited. I was down here for about two years. And the telecommunications industry, this is about uh, 2000, 2001. And the telecommunications industry was going through some pretty massive change. We just launched digital, getting ready to launch high-speed data. And we were getting rid of this thing called AOL, if you remember, and launching this new product, which cost nothing to deliver down the exact lines that we had, other than some upgrades in the infrastructure. So I knew that competition and profits were going to go up. And so I tried to get myself positioned ahead of the game. 
And I got recruited away from Adelphia for about six months with AT&T, helped them through their transition, and then came back to South Florida, open up my business and get started. So when we opened the competitive landscape for the cable market, and there was no longer monopoly territories, that's really, that regulatory change is really what spurred your uh, business that it could even come into existence, right? That's exactly right. Because at the end of the day, if a condo association said, hey, cable company, I, I don't want to do business with you, the cable company would say, well, if you don't sign this agreement, we'll just pull our cable out. And so people didn't want to do without cable. But now that I knew that choice was coming, choice didn't really come until about 2005, six and seven. But I thought if I could get open early, talk to people, tell them what I was doing and build a contract that was really a no obligation with them, just be as friendly as I could and help these people through this because as a homeowners association, guessing at paint color, floors, roof is pretty easy. But trying to decide on a telecommunications contract for 10 years, you should not be guessing at. So I'm an HOA president. And I, I, I'm, I'm saying hypothetically, fortunately, I'm not an HOA president. I'm saying <laughs> hypothetically, I'm an HOA president. Right, right. And I call somebody at your firm and say, hey, we're looking at our cable service. We're not happy with our current provider. We're not happy with what, our paying, what we're paying. What happens next? What do you do for us? Well, there's two types of contracts that we negotiate. So in South Florida, you're pretty used to having what's called a bulk contract. And a bulk contract is an amenity contract. And what I mean by that is the cable companies got tired of disconnecting and reconnecting as the populations would come from the north half the year and then go back up. And people got, car, got, got tired of calling in. 25 years ago, 30 years ago, the cable companies decided to start negotiating for leaving the cable on for a long period of time, deciding on a package and having the association included in the amenities package. So you pay your tennis courts, you pay your pool, you pay your association dues, and then that would be some type of package for cable. What we do is whatever price the cable company has told our client in a bulk contract is their best and final price. We come in and negotiate. So we only get paid if we're able to save the customer money or make them money that they weren't used to getting. So for example, if the cable company said, it might be AT&T, it might be Hotwire, it might in this market, it might be um, Comcast. And they said it's $35.95 per unit. It's a 10 year contract and it goes up 6%. Now we have a job to do. And because of our volume, we right now in this market, represent about 850 properties. And across the United States, we represent 4,100 communities for a total of 1.2 million subscribers behind our contract uh, negotiations. Those are famous. Some of them are Kiowa Island, if you've heard of them. They can be as big as Kings Point, 7,800 units, and as small as 150 units out on the beach somewhere. And so when you say you represent 850 properties, you're talking about condo associations. Condos, homeowners associations, mobile home parks, apartment communities, and so on. The reason why that's important is the real value of a cable subscriber on Wall Street after the Time Warner merger, Time Warner was around for years, they merged with, uh, with Charter Communications, is about $5,850 per subscriber. So if you can imagine us representing the gateway to 1.2 million of those subscribers, and that just grew, grew last year by about 35,000 subscribers, that's what we're representing now 16 years later. That's a lot of profit for the cable companies. A yeah. lot, yeah. Yeah. Chris, you moved to South Florida. You start this business. Is this the first business that you ever started? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm what most people call a slightly dyslexic entrepreneur. I didn't know that about myself. 
I had a really good mentor as a child. My grandfather was a business consultant, in fact, and a cost accountant. He and I used to take long walks together. And as early as, you know, I try to remember, the early as I can remember, I probably was 11 to 12 years old when um, I started talking to my grandfather about cars. And he and I were car guys. Grandfather liked cars. And I started talking about him. And in South Carolina, where I'm from, you're allowed to get a car at 15 and drive it during the day. And so I was already getting excited. So I was trying to figure out ways I could do that. My grades weren't very good. And we didn't know why back then, but probably because of my slight dyslexia. I asked grandfather what I should do. And he said, well, you know what, let me work on that. And then for Christmas, I got a lawnmower. And I asked him what that's for. And he said, so you can get that car. And at 14, I had enough money to buy the car, sneak it in the driveway before mom got home from work, right before football practice. And that's, that was my first job. Second job was a starving student car wash. And then when I was in college trying to figure out how to pay my bills, I started and trademarked a a little advertising card called the Campus Club Card. And I did that at the College of Charleston, Lander University, and Presbyterian College. The Campus Club Card. Correct. So is this a discount card? Is this something that uh, I Yep, just a discount card. And, And the idea was real simple. You'd probably seen these little plastic cards flopped around in little places sure. people gave them away. And I thought in my little town of Presbyterian College, which is in Clinton, South Carolina, I thought the newspaper charged about $750 to put an ad in it, in the newspaper, the school newspaper. And it would be distributed to the 1,700 students in the faculty. And that would last for a week. And then there'd be a new newspaper. And then you'd have to pay another $750 to be in that newspaper. So I thought I'll do $750 and you can be in the back wallet or the pocketbook of every single student for the entire year. And I'll give you exclusive in your category. The one franchise owner in the town that had a hamburger joint for since 1945, one of those little drive up things where you skate around and so on. Mr. Wyford, um, I approached Mr. Wyford, told him that uh, McDonald's was coming to town next year. I knew it was. And if he agreed to be the first one on the card, I'd give him a discount of $500. It'd be in the back pocket of everybody. And I knew I would not put McDonald's on there. And I agreed to give him that that particular category. I did the same thing for 15 different categories. The rest of them were $750. My cost was $360 in the trademark. Wow. So this was like this, this was your college business instead of playing poker to put yourself through college. You're well, you're out there selling. I definitely played a lot of poker, but but yes, I there was what was cool about the job is I did it for three years. The first year I did it, 95% of the 15 customers came back again. And I gave them a discount for signing up without me having to come visit them. I gave them 10% off and they all signed up again. Because in order to use the card, you had to show the card. And so they got to see it when it was used. And that was the key difference between that and the newspaper. All right. And so how long did uh, this continue? Just while you were in college? Just for three years. But I did stretch it out. I went to the other colleges the next year. So I I would make my money in about two weeks every year. And then I was good to go. That's awesome. So you get done, you're going to Presbyterian College. Is that what you said? That's correct. And you study political science. Of course. Yes. Like all good entrepreneurs, it's probably some liberal arts degree. That's correct. Because many of us just weren't numerical enough to go to business school. Well, that and I couldn't very, very well learn a foreign language if I couldn't get the English one down very well either. So, But you did say you're from South Carolina. That's correct. Okay. We're in South Carolina. We're getting done at Presbyterian College. Where do you go from there? What's the first job? So the first job was, um, it's it's interesting. I had had been offered um, a job up in Washington, D.C., went through the process. You have to get a background check. And they offered me a job for $15,000 a year to work for Jack Kemp at the time to work for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. 
I owed $15,000 in student loans. So I said, thank you very much, Jack. I'm going back home. And I got a job at the local cable company, which I didn't know anything about, but they had just posted no experience necessary. Come, come join the wave of the future and earn as much money as you can selling our services. And that's what I did. So were you doing this door to door? We did door to door. Then about a month after I did that, my boss, my boss kept calling college boy because nobody was doing it, but I needed the money and had a necessity. That's my famous, my favorite quote is had a necessity grows invention. And I also wanted to learn, I'd had my business, but there were things about my business that I wanted to learn from a bigger company. I got on with a, a great little company called Telecable and they own the weather channel and the travel channel and a, a number of cable towns, small cable towns. And I worked my way up and I got promoted quickly. They promoted me within a year to project manager. And then I was negotiating franchises in the small towns that they had as, um, as operators. And it's off to the races from there. That's correct. So somewhere along the lines, you meet a young lady. Yes. End up getting married to this young lady and you have a daughter now, right? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about that. My, my daughter's 11 years old. Her name's Alexandra. I uh, met her mom while I was at the TCI cable company in Miami, Florida. I had just, my small company, which was Telecable, had just been purchased by the world's largest cable company, TCI Cable. And I was working in a little town of Margate, which we had a small system there just for a project. We got a call one day and they said, we would like you guys to go down to the Miami cable system and take it over. So we went down the Miami cable system and we took it over. My, my future wife was the marketing coordinator for the system. And I can remember the first time I found her pretty interesting. She was from New York, incapable of holding back anything that she needed to say at the time. And there were 15 men in a room. They were talking about these nice things that they wanted to do over the next six months. And one of them was a very important project regarding marketing. And everybody nodded their head and said, yes. And this tiny little 24-year-old lady at the end rose, raised her hand and said, I'm sorry, this will absolutely not work. And I listened to her for the next 15 minutes in front of 15 men. And every one of them was right. You're absolutely right, Michelle. We got to do something different. I was like, what's her name? That's pretty good. It's like all good romances. They started in the office. I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast before, but my wife Sharon and I worked together in downtown Chicago. We met working for an investment firm called Principal Securities on LaSalle Street in Chicago. And I walked by her desk the first day that I was there and I said, that's a really, really interesting looking woman, really attractive to me. And someday I'd like to have a wife that's like her. And I'd had a conversation with her at, at uh, this point. I wasn't just entirely looking at her, but it was absolutely amazing that the moment I saw her, I knew she was going to be the one. So funny, funny how life treats us in many cases. Absolutely. You never know. All right. So Alex is 11 years old. Has she given any indication of what she would like to do? Well, she, right, we, it's funny, we, because of COVID, I've gotten to know my daughter extremely well over the last six to nine months. It's been fantastic. I have to say, you know, there's, there's always a blessing behind every curse and getting you to spend a lot of quality time with your, with your kids is really one of them. She's very interested in teaching. She's extremely great with kids. She's pretty entrepreneurial. I, I made her do a coconut stand uh, uh, about three years ago. She wanted to, came home and said, Dad, I want to do a lemonade stand. And I said, well, lemonade, you'd sell it for how much? And she said, I don't know, maybe a dollar. And I said, well, I got an idea. I, don't, I just want you to think about it. And she said, what's that? And I said, we have all these coconuts that are free. We have all these tourists that come down over on Singer Island. What if you and I open up a coconut stand one day? And we did, and we sold them for $4 and she made 71 bucks in an hour and a half. 
it was a great first venture for us, and she's uh, she's talked about it ever since. So was she cutting the ends off and putting a straw in them? I was using a, um, you get them in Hawaii, they're what, what's called a core. You just stick it in the top and you twist it, and you can pop a straw right in it instead of having to chop them all up. She would say, literally people would come out of the restaurant, uh, Johnny Lombo's over there, and she, we had the Hawaiian music playing Saturday morning. And she would say, coconuts, coconuts, get them just for $4. They're nice and fresh, and dad will cut the core, and you can drink the juice right out of the coconut for, for nothing but a pick of a straw of green, red, and yellow. And I've got all the colors right here. And what's a better salesperson than an 11-year-old or younger, probably at that time, at that little, time, little girl? She, she was eight and a half to nine years old and no one could resist. Yeah, absolutely. You and Michelle meet in Miami or in Margate. Eventually, you find your way up to this area. And now you live in Juneau or North Palm? Uh, we live in North Palm Beach. Okay. So how did you get up here? We had been in Deerfield for a while. Then we lived in Atlanta for a little while. Um, I was with the satellite division of um, Prime Star. Adelphia hired me to come back down and our divisional offices for the for the five states in Puerto Rico just happened to be off Congress and Blue Heron and the little building there, little office building there. I don't like to live too far away from my job. I found a good little house on Singer Island at the time. I just recently sold that house, but I moved into the new location. Still really didn't move more than 10 miles away from where the, the job brought me. I like to, th- to say that the podcast is called Business in Paradise because I get to live and work in paradise. And when we moved down here from Chicago, we came down. It was the middle of November. We're attending a meeting at the Breakers Hotel. And Sharon and I are looking at each other as we're driving back to the airport and going, why are we going back to Chicago in the middle of November? We got four months of a really nasty winter ahead of us. Let's figure out a way to get down here. When you think about being able to live in Palm Beach County, do you have the same thought process that we really get to live in paradise? South Florida has its 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 good things and bad things. But the, the nice thing that I really enjoy about South Florida is the diversity. There's nothing like going on a business trip to Denver in January, coming back and getting off that plane at PBI and seeing the palm trees, and then maybe taking a drive down to Atlantic or up here to Jupiter and smelling the food on a Saturday night. That's just the stuff that makes you want to come back. If it probably weren't for cra- uh, uh, stone crab, I probably would have probably left a long time ago. But stone crab and South Florida just keep pulling you back. That's true. That's really good. Chris, you built this amazing communication consulting business, communication consulting group. You're dealing with literally uh, hundreds and, and, and or thousands of different uh, homeowners associations, condo associations, et cetera. But you didn't stop there. You said, eh, there's a couple of other things that I'd like to do, and I've got these other ideas. And like all good entrepreneurs, you uh, tried to figure out a way to make these things happen while you're juggling three other balls. What would you like to tell us about first? And I know that fellow entrepreneurs go through this. We, we develop our business. You said, I, I, I built this. I haven't built it. A lot of entrepreneurs are, are idea guys. Some of them are, are more technical and they, they develop maybe engineering designs or something like that. But for us that really just take an idea and build, it's usually that we're building a team and the team makes the difference. And so for me, I've been a team builder, played team sports all my life. I know people talk about diversity and, and um, other ways to view things, but I sincerely have seen it work. I've sincerely seen it be successful. And so my job as an entrepreneur is to, to have an idea that I think will give us a good shot at a long-term business. And I like to build residual income. One of the things we saw at CCG was, is that not only were the landowners not being represented 
when it came to HOAs, homeowners associations, condo associations, and really real estate investment trusts are still missing it. We're working on that now. They would tell me they had extra land. And what can we do with this extra land? And there's ways to monetize that land. And the traditional way to monetize that land provided a gap. And here was a gap again. And the gap was that if you have land, let's say, for example, you're a um, a real estate investor and you have 15, 20 different apartment complexes and uh, four or five of those apartment complexes when you bought them ended up with land. Maybe you thought you're going to build a thousand apartments, but you ended up building 250. Now you've got 45 acres sitting out here off of 95 somewhere. They would offer that to a real estate agent to go out and represent to lease it. But a real estate agent only gets paid a percentage of the first month of that lease. There's modalities that will provide a landowner a return on investment without having to sell that land. That can be cell phone towers, 30, 50 year leases. It can be partnerships with um, solar and wind, FPNL's next terror business, grazing rights, land rights, access agreements, um, all kinds of ways that a landowner can make money to pay the taxes on the land, but yet at the same time, not have to sell the land, including contributions to universities to use the land for research and for conservation rights so that they don't have to give it away. The problem was no one could represent them to those different businesses because real estate agents, if you said, will you lease my land, Henry? He'd say, don't you want to sell it? That was the way that uh, he would make money. Um, I started landlease.com using sort of the same approach, contract language and terms that we've been using over the last 15 years to build a team that will now represent the land for the industries that need the land. If you um, have an extra piece of land and you want it to actually be represented to the to industries that might want to lease it, we have that team together. And we've, we've done that now, built the website. You can go and look at the website. And now there's an app for it as well. So you can hold it in your hand. So let's say you're working for a cell phone tower company and you need a cell phone tower in this particular area. Instead of knocking all the doors and telling people and starting from the ground, ground up, you can actually click the button, find all the people who are interested in leasing their land for that possibility or that modality and pick up the uh, pick up the phone and call. Do we find out in advance for those people that might want to lease for a cell phone tower if that's a permissible zoning? Is that something that you do? The great news about that is as a landowner, you don't do anything. You simply let us put your land up on the site and market the land. You're under no obligation to take anything and you owe us no money. If at any time you want to take the land off, you take it off and say, Chris, I'm selling it or I don't want to do this anymore. What ends up happening is the people that are in that industry, in the cell phone tower industry, now take your land and market it to the cell phone towers and the cell phone companies and the cell companies that need that land. And they'll tell you if it's available for that. And they'll actually go and do it for you. And instead of just getting a lease, because my people are in that industry, they'll help you partner with them. So not only do you get a lease, but now you get a percentage of the leases that are on the cell phone tower. And your revenue stream comes from? We get a percentage of anything that we find if, and only if, you'd like to take the deal. Wow. No obligation. Okay. So for uh, organizations that have a lot of extra land, it's an easy way to monetize it. I drive by a piece of property almost every single day, either coming or going back and forth from my office, that I look at, and I know this condo association owns it. It's called Little Club in Tequesta. And there's this piece of land that's just... Un, it has never been cleared. It's owned by the association. Back there somewhere in the middle of it, it's a dumpster. But I just keep thinking to myself, they do absolutely nothing with this property and it's got to have some value. Now, it's far enough away from my house that I wouldn't mind if they put a cell tower on it. Anyway. Well, so, just so you know, just yeah. uh, 
Cell phone towers aren't like they used to be. The traditional ones, the big towers, those are still out there. But the ones that go on top of rooftops and condos, you don't even see them. And I've got customers that monetize that every day. And it's thousands and thousands of dollars in their budget every month. I hope the folks that are listening to this podcast are thinking about ways that uh, that might be able to fit. And you can give Chris a call or go to the website is landlease.com. Landlease.com. Thanks, Chris. You got uh, Communications Consulting Group, which you put a team together that built landlease.com. But wait, there's more. <laughs> What's the most recent entrepreneurial endeavor for Chris Merrill? Well, one thing leads to another. So as we built the technology and the app for Landlease, we realized that a virtual marketplace, which is what Landlease is, Airbnb, VRBO types of businesses, we realized that that technology and the coding of that technology would be helpful for many industries. And I had that in the back of my head. But uh, three and a half years ago, I was speaking at a conference out in Las Vegas and I uh, played rugby in college, have a lower back issue. And I woke woke up at the nice uh, hotel I was at and I called down to their spa and my, my conference was at 11 a.m. It was 8 a.m. and I called the spa to get a massage to help my back. It's hurting pretty bad, my lower back. And they were all booked. So I picked up the phone and called all three massage envies right off the strip. Love massage envy, great, great brick and mortar business. They were all booked. It was Saturday. So I was like, man, there should be an app for that. And I never let that out of my head. I came back, looked into the industry. It's an $18.7 billion industry now. Uh, about five years ago, it was about a $14 billion industry. That tells you the growth right there. I wanted to build an app that would allow people in the profession, and it's a very great profession. Those people are, are fantastic. Just to give you an idea of the numbers, there's 385,000 massage therapists licensed in the United States in 46 states. They have a hard time getting business. They can work in a brick and mortar and make $17 an hour. I decided to open up an app that would give them total control of their business. We would market the app and just like VRBO or Airbnb, they build their profile and their modalities and people can find the massage therapist they want at the price they want. And our, our, our software simply exchanges the business transaction between the two. Chris, what's the app called and how do I find it on my phone? It's called Matago, M-A-T-A-G-O, and it's in the Apple um, store as well as the Android store as well. Okay, so I download the app, yep. I put my information in, I decide that I want to get a massage on Saturday morning uh, at 10 o'clock. What happens? Well, you open up the app, you put in what location you want it in, it'll search everybody that's what you're looking for. So let's say, for example, you want a male or a female, you check that off. If you want a deep tissue massage or a sweetest massage, whatever it might be you want. And then I'll pull up all the people. You actually get to pick your price range as well. So, for example, if you're in Palm Beach County on a Saturday morning, massages are going to be a little expensive. But if you're in Mobile, Alabama or a small town in, in South Carolina, it might be a lot less. So the app is adaptable for you to check prices in a range. So you choose maybe between $79 and $125. And that'll pull up all the people that'll do that for an hour at that price range. And then you get to pick them based on what other clients say about them, about how much experience they have. And all of them are background checked, verified, which means they're FBI fingerprinted. And so you know that you're getting a good massage therapist. And what's great about it is they'll come to wherever you are. If you're in a hotel, you're out by the pool, or you're laying on the beach with your wife. My very first massage myself was out by the beach. 
the gal who came out to give it to me, to give it to me, thought she recognized me. And about 15 minutes in the massage, I said, how do you like working for this? She goes, this is my first massage with this app. And I said, how do you like it so far? And she said, well, it's the most beautiful location I've ever given a massage in. And it's also the best money I've ever made for an hour massage. And I knew then that the app would work. Wow. I can have them at my, they can come to my house, do a massage there, anywhere I would like. Your office. You can order one for your wife. You can get one sent over to your office. You can have one out by the pool, wherever you'd like. And so for the massage therapist, you described this one experience, but what's in it for them? Why, why would they want to sign up to be on the service? So that was the key. And I know this, all my businesses are too good to be true businesses. We all make fun of it in the office. They want to give me a shirt that says that, but the idea here was that I got my first mobile massage from a young lady before I built the app. And when it was done, I didn't get to choose who it was. She came out to the house. She gave me my massage. She was very nice. But she was about three months out of college, maybe about 19 or 20. And her idea of a deep tissue massage was a very light massage. And so I'm sure a lot of us listeners have had that experience. I felt like I needed to build an app for not only the client myself, but for the massage therapist so that they could get paid more. So when I asked her when she was done, how much she got paid for the massage, she got half paid half of what I paid her. I decided to give them a lot more and it's a lot more. And so I decided to just take the money from the transactions. I figure I can make it up in volume and we have. But the massage therapist can be working for anybody they wanna be working for. They're an independent agent. Under license of each state, they're an independent agent. And if they're working you know, Monday through Friday until five o'clock, they can pick up a job with us, open up their, their app, set their calendar at between six and nine, pick up a job. And what's more important is myself as a client knows who's coming because I've seen their profile, get to chat with them before they come. And more important for the massage therapist and their safety is they get to see what the clients are like and they do not have to accept a massage. If a client has a bad rating or someone said this, this fella was a little questionable or their house didn't, didn't feel right for them, they'll see those remarks in the comments and they can take the client or not take the client. And they can set their prices each day based on what they think their, their, the volume will, the, the, the market will hold. So if Saturday might be a little bit more expensive or they may be trying to go see their mom in a little town out in Okeechobee and they can set their prices a little lower. Very much like the system that Uber has in place where we're rating the drivers and the drivers are rating us. Correct. Okay, that's really cool, Chris. You've got all this stuff, you, all these balls in the air. Go back 25, 30 some years ago. Think about what you were thinking when you were, you know, maybe in college or just right out of college. Did you ever envision that this would be kind of where you'd be today? Yes, actually, I did because I did a lot of envisioning at that age. I was taught uh, by my mentor to visualize where you would be at certain ages and things and literally take the time to see what that might look like. I would like to say that I was on time. I'm about 10 years behind of where I envisioned I would be. Those visions, although the way you arrive at those visions and the paths change, the outcomes are close to the same if you take the time to do them. And I do annual goal setting, create a vision for the business, create a vision for myself, for my life, look at the things in my life that I'd like to change and work on. And it's incredibly powerful because I'll go back every couple of years and pull things out that I wrote five years ago or 10 years ago about I want to have this car, or I want to have this house, or I'd like to donate so much to charity. And I will think to myself, 
that's all I wanted to do <laughs> because I have so far exceeded those things that I, I wrote down at that time. So if you have a vision, a vision to me means you've created in your mind some type of a definition that you would call success. <clears throat> you say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. If, if I'm going to define success and I'm thinking about where I'm going in the future, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to every person. For some people, it's material things. For some people, it's in, internal gratification, whatever it is. What's that mean to Chris Merrill? I believe that as a capitalist, I want to have people and my peers and so on understand that there is such a thing as a, cap, a capitalist who's compassionate. And I believe that with technology, and I'm trying to do that now with my businesses, we can do that with technology. We can provide a more compassionate capitalistic approach by simplifying labor and services with customers without too many middlemen. With technology, virtual marketplaces like we're building, I believe we're able to take the opportunity and pass that on to the people that actually do the work. There's always, I run these case scenarios, I run best case, Worst case and most likely case scenario is when you have a business idea. It's important to put it all down on paper. Thank God for spreadsheets as a kid I learned from my grandfather. But your ultimate deal is to have a successful business and a venture that will allow you to give back and provide some way in which you've made a difference. We've got our charitable causes. We have fantastic charitable causes at CCG, Place of Hope, and many others. But really in the industry that you're in, if you can provide a better way to provide services and provide a better outcome for all those parties involved. That's really what I'm shooting for. That's a great definition. So Chris, the other thing that I find is that if I'm defining success, to me, it comes in the form in many, at many times in the form of wisdom. And wisdom to me comes from making mistakes and from going through tough <laughs> times. Yeah. Was there ever a time where Chris Merrill made a mistake in business uh, that you could go back and say, geez, I wish I'd done things a little bit differently or that you were going through a tough time? And for me, of course, it was the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 as a financial advisor with the market plummeting, just moving to Florida, not knowing what the heck was going on. I, I kind of was lost for a little while, but I said, I just got to put my head down and keep working. What did some of those experiences look like for you? I, my, my first large one was uh, in, in uh, 1998. I had the franchise rights after working for the cable company and, and they were established franchises for a satellite for a, a business called Prime Star Satellite. And I had from Key West to Orlando. And I could have never foreseen that the satellite that was going to bring us into small dish providing would blow up on takeoff and it blew up on takeoff in China. It was self-insured by AT&T and the companies that I worked for that, that made Primestar. And so the business closed down pretty rapidly and it became DirecTV. DirecTV bought the rights of Primestar. Okay, I closed that business down about nine months later. I didn't lose any money. I was very lucky I'd been making money, but I couldn't have foreseen that happen. But I decided then and there, thank God I went through that experience. Two and a half years of building the business, six months of having to close it, and was left with not really much income. But if I had not gone through that, I would have never made the decision to never, ever not have my own product or service again if I were going to go into business for myself. And the latest problem I've had, <laughs> I spent three and a half years working on Matago in the back and spending 
literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch it in the world's largest pandemic. What's the one thing you don't really want to order in mobile? You certainly want mobile food. That's doing well. But you probably don't want mobile massage coming to your door during a pandemic. So we're just getting through that one. And, and uh, luckily, it isn't costing us any money. But I do do want to get those massage therapists busy again once we come out. That's a pretty good lesson. When you lose your entire business because of something that happens that you have absolutely no control over that uh, is you know, happening to another company. How long ago was that? That was 1999. And uh, that's when I got back in and Adelphia recruited me to come back to Florida. Okay. So it all worked out for the best. Great. It was actually the best thing that that could have happened at the time. Yeah. Chris, along the way, I've had the benefit of many great mentors. You've mentioned your grandfather a couple of times that he was a cost accountant. He was a guy that taught you to visualize and to uh, put together spreadsheets. Is there anybody else that you think has been instrumental in your journey along the way that's been a great mentor for you? or even a great business coach, so somebody that's just giving you some really good advice? I don't think anyone that can be successful in business or sports can't have mentors along the way. And I'm so grateful for probably 10 or 15 of them, to be honest. Each one, look, no one's perfect and everybody has their own approach. But I think what you do is just like you do with your parents, you pick the, the good things and the bad things and you try to move forward with what you think the great qualities are and you bring them together and you, and you do it. And you do it with your kids. I, I, had a, I came from a family that had an extremely good work ethic. My mom, my father passed away when I was seven. My mom worked two jobs. She worked uh, until 11 o'clock at night. Uh, she worked one job during the day and then she'd come home, fix me dinner and then go back at about seven o'clock and work till 11 o'clock as a receptionist for the local NBC station. Watching her work hard and watching her not incapable of telling a lie. My mother and my grandfather both absolutely 100% incapable of telling a lie. They didn't always tell me what I wanted to hear and they might not answer the question right away. They might say, well, Chris, I want to think about that before I answer it. And then they'd come back and tell me. But I knew that they were incapable of telling me a lie. And that meant a lot to me because I saw them do that in their businesses. I saw my grandfather definitely. And I saw my, my uncles and my mom do that. And it, it meant a lot to me. You've got so many balls in the air, Michelle and, and Alexandra at home. How do you maintain any type of a work-life balance where you know that you're doing things at home with the family and keeping them, keeping them happy because they get enough daddy time or husband time, but you're still running these, all of these different ventures? How do you do it? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. You have to find people. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure every business person gets to the point where you have to decide who you're going to let run the business. Because if you don't uh, trust other people to run your business and to take care of the daily stuff, you won't find any time. So you, you, have, to, you have to trust people. I've always kept an open door. I'm not a, I, I, I'm not a dictator in my businesses. It's a, it's, a, it's a joint effort with one goal in mind is a satisfied customer. Thank God I had ADHD as a, as a kid because it's, it's carried me along to where I am now. I'm an excitable guy. I love life, the fact that I'm above ground. I think it's really, really important uh, to spend quality time with your family. I think it's really, really important to spend quality time with yourself in your own ventures. This is one life we have. Live it to the fullest for me. And that means fun. It means taking care of those people that you care about and being able to contribute back. And, I, and, and I, it is a weird balance. It's a hard balance some days, but you have to make yourself flexible. Uh, to do them all. And, um, you know, no one's perfect. I drive my staff crazy as I do my family, I'm sure as well. Now, Chris, you said you had ADHD as a kid, <laughs> Yeah. as a kid. Yes. Um, okay. 
So it hasn't carried through. It has carried through. And that's the thing yeah. that keeps me busy. So that's the good news. Yeah. It did not go unnoticed, but that's absolutely a benefit to an entrepreneur. But you get a million ideas. And like you said, you drive your staff crazy and they look at me like I have two heads or they assume that everything I say, I want them to do. Right. And that's the other thing is you can't do everything I say. No. You know, you need to pick and choose or at least pin me down. But we have to get it out. We yes. can't let it. We can't hold it in. We just have to get it out. So. That's right. One of the things that I do is I like to get up early in the morning. I spend a lot of time thinking in the morning. I spend my time reading in the morning and I spend my time addressing the things that I need to do to plan out my day first thing in the morning. And that's really helped me in my business career kind of get things started. Uh, Several days a week, believe it or not, I actually go to the gym and I work with a trainer. How do you start your day? What's your success ritual in the morning? Well, I'm, I'm an NPR nerd, so I'll cut on NPR in the morning, first thing in the morning to get my news and general information. And But I am an exercise guy. I like to get up in the morning and do some type of activity, whether it's uh, 30 minutes of running and exercising. But then I do have my list. And my list, because I've grown up in technology and grown up um, certainly in the cable and, and um, high-speed data industry, I've had to make my days have at least two or three hours for something that you can't predict. And you can't predict technology and you can't predict what will happen. We just had an issue with the app the other day. Apple made a change in their um, coding. We had to change our calendar, something we couldn't forecast. Had to go back into it. So luckily I had two and a half hours I could dedicate to that to get some stuff done and listen to to my CMO over there uh, and tell us that we're going to have to change some stuff. So it's important to keep that, that time flexible. I do think that if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to see stuff on a daily basis that you must not be able to predict and there's no way to plan for it and you have to make yourself flexible for it and you have to put that into your morning routine so that you're prepared for it at six o'clock seven o'clock and even 11 o'clock at night when it happens and i've talked to a lot of our listeners who are younger entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs if you were a younger person right now in this tech economy and you were thinking about starting a new business That's a loaded question. I've got 10 ideas. (laughs) Whatever it is. I'm not asking what the business is, but what advice would you give to those people to say, okay, if you're going to get started, here are some things you absolutely must think about. I'm going to face this with my own daughter as she gets ready to go to school here pretty soon. And her focuses as we talk about her goals each year. I really think basic principles, the principles that have been taught since Socrates and and Aristotle all the way down to where we are today. Um, There's lots of books. Everybody has a fan of a book. You know, The Seven Habits is a great book. It's a foundation that that, uh, every kid should look at. There's uh, Covey has a teenage version I've just done with my daughter. But principles are the guiding posts. And I know that sounds for some people, that sounds like a lecture, but I'm I'm an eternal optimist. You have to be. You have to make that decision to be an optimist in order to have a bright light and, and to people to, to come to you and want to work for you and, and to listen to your ideas. And the principles of integrity and honesty and trust are, you know, and there's a lot of different principles, probably 15 to 16 that are really important. But I think establishing principles, if you're, you know, going into college right now and we all want to have fun and we all did, believe me, I, I had my own fun for a year in college and paid for it dearly, but got out somehow. But I think we, we all need to go back to our principles and those principles haven't changed and you'll never see a statue of a famous person that didn't have principles. I think that's 
that's what I would recommend for every, every kid going to college or thinking about a career is whatever career you choose, no matter where you show up every day and no matter who you talk to, always think about your principles that you're living by and everything, everything else sort of makes its way to you. Chris, that's a great tease for some of the audio that we're going to put on the cover for this podcast. I absolutely love what you just said. You work hard. Hope you spend time with your family. Hopefully you also play hard. So you told me a little while ago that you have a particular affinity for the mountains in North Carolina. Aside from going to the mountains in North Carolina and share a little bit about that, but what else do you like to do for fun with your family? I played rugby. I grew up in a family that had uh, my brother and my mother had two two uncles. And so we all had boys except for grandmother and mom, unfortunately, poor girls. And uh, so when I had a daughter, I was going to, what am I going to do with her? There's no rugby. I can't teach her how to play football and baseball. I won't see the home runs. But what's been fun is we've picked up skiing. Snow skiing has been something that she's been doing since she was four. And I do love the mountains. I like all mountains, travel, sports, bike riding, all that stuff's great. I do a lot of sporting clays. I shoot in a lot of tournaments for sporting clays. And my daughter just shot shotgun for the first time uh, out in Okeechobee at OK Corral last, just yesterday, actually. We, we, we enjoy the, the outdoors a lot and we like hiking and biking. And luckily my daughter enjoys the outdoors as much as I do. And we share that a lot. Shout out to the OK Corral. We had our <laughs> holiday party there, not this year, but the year before. Yeah. And it was an absolute blast. I'm not very good with a shotgun. My wife had never shot clays before. Everybody enjoyed the experience. So that was a good time. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's really fun. If you haven't ever done it, I'd, I'd just encourage everybody to go and enjoy. It's a great way to spend the afternoon. Yeah. Chris, thanks. You've told us so much about your businesses, who you are, and your story today. To share with our listeners, you know, just kind of one last thought. Do you have a favorite uh, historical figure, somebody that you look back on and you say, geez, as I lead my life, I would love to live the same types of principles, to use your word, as this particular individual? Well, yeah, I I mean, I, I would love to point out someone that would be famous or that everybody could relate to. But for me, my guiding light has been my grandfather. My grandfather was, um, you know, it's funny. I'm sure I'm going to have that type of relationship. I'm looking forward to it. When my father passed away, my grandfather came into the room. I was seven years old. And he said, Chris, your mother is going to have to be the only one in the family to take care of you besides us. Your father's not coming home. I'm going to need you to be the man of the house. And from that moment on, my grandfather became this guiding light. And he taught me the principles of life. I thought we're silly then, didn't quite understand. But he, every year when we sat down to do our goals, every year when we sat down to do our goals, they didn't mean anything for the first 15, 17, 18 years. But by the time I was 25, it was such a great habit, habit in my life and such a great way for me to approach the day that I have to give all the credit for somebody that I'd like to live like for Sterling Smith. Wow. I, think, I think he was, um, you know, he went to God. I love to say this because he reminded me every day. He went to the University of Michigan at 16 in mathematics. Amazing yeah, man. That's a great story. Sterling Smith, I was going to ask you his name if you didn't share it. <laughs> We're sitting in my office, which the listeners can't see. And on the wall of my office, as you approach my actual office, are stock certificates that my grandfather, who was a dentist in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, purchased. And he was really the one that got me interested in the markets and the economy and what was going on in the world. So to have that type of a relationship with a grandfather is extraordinarily special. And I completely understand what you're saying. 
Chris, you've been a great guest. I'm Kerry Stamp. This is the Business in Paradise podcast, and we have learned a lot today about Chris Merrill and the many entrepreneurial ventures he's been involved in. Thanks so much, Chris, for being a guest. Thanks, Kerry. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Kerry Stamp, founder of Kerry Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Carrie Stamp and Company is located at 110 Bridge Road to Cuesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Thank you.